So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to, li to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. I'm so glad you're joining us, whether you're online or here in person. My name's Scott. I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. We're in this series uh, and we're talking about rebuilding your life, or maybe you need to build, maybe you need to rebuild. I don't know where you are in terms of the pandemic, but the tool that we're using to give us some guidance is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the ancient city of Colossae, which we know of as in the New Testament as the letter of Colossians. Now, I always want to make sure that when we read the scriptures, we understand that we're actually looking at something that actually happened. These are not made up things. These are not uh, fairy tales. These are not uh, aphorisms or mor moral stories. These are not Aesop's fables. Uh, these are historical things that actually happened. And so I just want you to see where Colossae is. If you don't have a sense of where this is, I've got a map for you uh, from Google. You can kind of locate it. It's there in Turkey. You can see it near Greece, Italy, all of that. And then I've got a, a map here, picture of the ancient world. These are some of the cities that the Apostle Paul visited as he planted churches. There's Ephesus. And then, um, then those three cities right there, Laodicea, Colossae, and Heropolis, were together in what was known as the Lycus Valley. Now, you may have heard of uh, the Laodicea. If you've read the book of Revelation, you've likely heard in those early chapters, there was a letter written to that each of those churches, and one of the letters was written to Laodicea. Laodicea was in a valley, in, the, in that Lycus Valley there. I have a friend who visited uh, Laodicea. I, I messaged him. I said, hey, were you, I knew he'd been in that part of the world. And I said, do you have a picture of Colossae? And he said, only from a distance. I said, okay, give it to me. And so here's, the, here's his picture. And I said, I'm going to make your finger famous on Sunday. Um, so he's standing where Laodicea was, and he's pointing across the Lycus Valley to where Colossae is. And then if you were to look off the screen to your left, that would be Heropolis, so that everybody in Laodicea, all the Christians there, uh, when they read that letter that John wrote in Revelation, and he said, listen, I, I, I see your faith, and, and you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Everybody in Laodicea standing from right here looking at this, uh, this valley would have known instantly what he was talking about. Uh, Heropolis on the left was known for its hot springs that were medicinal. And Colossae were, were known for the cool springs that came out from the mountains that were refreshing. And John was saying, listen, hey, Christians in Laodicea, uh, you don't have a faith that heals anybody, and you don't have a faith that refreshes anybody. It's just bleh. And you need to have a faith like the Christians in Colossae. So that's this letter. So it just gives you a little bit of the historical context of what's happening there. And the Apostle Paul is writing to us uh, what we're going to talk about today is kind of his theme for the entire book. 
he's writing to us to help us understand how we can live a free life. He's trying to help us understand what it means to have freedom in Christ. Now, is there a personality in human history who was freer than Jesus? Jesus was free from people's opinions. Jesus was free from convention. Jesus was free from any uh, understandings that people tried to put on him. If there was a person that we could imitate if we wanted to live a free life, I don't know of a person in human history that I could point you to to say, imitate him if you want to have a free life. Even in terms of how we understand freedom as modern people in, in the West, uh, I, we would, uh, Jesus, is the, Jesus is the example of a free life. Now, you got to pause because I always want this to be personal for you. And you got to ask yourself, okay, if, if Jesus lived this incredibly free life and he's the example, then what's it like for the average Christian? Does the average Christian live with the same levels of freedom that Jesus did or not? Now, I, I, I think it's probably unfair, but even in our culture, when people look at uh, the average Christian, they're, they're, it's a bit of a caricature, and I understand that. Uh, but they look at the average Christian and they go, yeah, not so much. Uh, I, I think the caricature, again, a caricature, I know it's not completely fair, but people look at Christians and they say, you know, Christians, they just kind of live this morally hen-packed life. And if they're ever having too much fun, then the fun police known as pastors tell them to stop it. And that's just kind of how this works. Now, I, again, I understand that's a complete caricature, but there's a little bit of reality to that. Have you heard the phrase that inside of every criticism, there's a kernel of truth? Because you've got to apply not Jesus level of freedom to the average Christian that you know, but you've got to apply it to you. Are you that free? In your life, do you have freedom? What has you bound up? Now, I think to do that and understand how we might access the freedom that Paul's telling us is available to us in Christ. We're going to have to do a bit of dissecting of our own hearts. Do you remember seventh grade? I'm kind of going to take everybody back. I know some of you probably did it this week because you're a seventh grader. But remember science class and the teacher would bring out like the bucket of frogs in formaldehyde. Do you remember this? And then you would pin it to the thing and you'd cut it and you'd name all the parts of the frog. Do you remember? Were you traumatized by it like I was? I don't know. I try to block that section of my life out, but we got to do a little bit of that on our heart. We got to dissect our own heart and understand what it is that prevents us from, from being free. There's an ache in the human heart, a longing to be free. Now, I've got three questions that I think kind of help us dissect our own hearts a little bit this morning, um, and I want to give them to you. Here's, here's the first question about your own freedom. What are you carrying? What are you carrying? Uh, most of us are, or many of us are, are not free because just of what we're weighted down with in life. I haven't done a lot of that this during the pandemic, but uh, I, I like to fly. I like to travel, and I like, I like flying. That's a, a lot of fun for me. Um, I always wanted to be a pilot growing up, never had good eyesight, didn't go in the military, just never going to happen. But I, so I love being on an airplane, and I love the whole experience of flying. And, and it's a common occurrence, especially if you're in a large airport, you know, Chicago or Atlanta, Denver, and you're changing planes. Uh, you know how it is, right? You're walking through the concourse and you see people everywhere you go, they're all carrying bags behind them, right? They've got baggage. Now, I'm, I'm that guy because I'm not about to pay the $50 
to let you haul my bag when I'm already paying you what I'm paying you to get on your plane. I'm not going to pay. I'm going to take the bag and then I'm going to have the backpack over my shoulder. And then just to spite you, I'm going to take something in my hands. Like I got it all. Right. And so, uh, but, but it's a metaphor for me about life, you know, that we're all kind of walking through the concourse of life and behind us, dragging behind us is all of our baggage. And you know, right, if you, you see, see someone in one of those settings in the airport and they don't have a bag behind them, what you know is they check their bag and when you're not looking, they're going to pick it up and it's huge. Like their baggage is enormous, right? And, and so it's, it functions as this metaphor for me that and, and it might actually help us instead of judging each other for the things that we're carrying if we just saw that as a part of traveling, because aren't people just trying to figure out, like, where do I put my things? Where do I take all this stuff that I'm carrying, with, that I've accumulated in life? Where do I put it? Maybe you've had that happy occurrence. Uh, this happened to me several times when you're flying and you're changing planes and you happen to run into someone that you know, you know what I'm talking about, and you say, hey, let's go sit down and let's go eat. You know how it is when you go to those little restaurants and the tables are about the size of this book, you know, and you have to sit down and then you sit with your friend and, and you both have to figure out, where am I going to put my baggage? Where, where am I going to set this? And, and we're all asking the question, will you sit with me and will you make room for my baggage? Because, you know, if you're dating somebody, you know, when you first start dating, you hide all your baggage because you don't want them to know. But then you marry them and you find out how big the bags are, right? <laughs> when you go to work for someone or when you hire someone, you discover, hey, this person, uh, they have baggage. And I think one of the things that keeps many Christians from the freedom that's available to us in Christ is we somehow think that, you know, once we get Jesus, that means that we either have no more baggage or we have to hide our baggage. And I'm just here to tell you, everybody has baggage. Everybody has issues. Everybody's been through stuff. Everybody's got trauma to some degree. A few years ago, I took a sabbatical, and as part of the sabbatical, we'd written a policy as a church and, and said, you know, here's what needs to happen and how that will all go down. And, and one of the stipulations we put for the health of every pastor who took the sabbatical was that you would go uh, to, you know, several sessions of counseling during your sabbatical. So I was going to see a counselor. I've seen a counselor before that. I just think it's really smart to get the mental health help that you need. And, uh, but I, I was sitting down, I'm talking to this counselor and I'm just talking about, you know, me and she's asking me questions and tell me about your past. And if you know a little bit about my story, you know, I lost my mom early in life and I don't know what it's like to have an adult mother who gives you advice. I don't, I don't I'm just not part of my story. And I was just describing some of the, the traumatic things around that. It, to me, were completely normal. She listened and just her face got a little bit darker as she listened, the longer she listened. And, and then she just said, you know, that sure sounds like trauma to me. And I realized maybe for one of the first times I went, oh, I have baggage. What are you carrying? Are you carrying people's expectations? Are you, are you carrying around disappointments? You know, someone let you down or you let yourself down? What are you, what are you carrying? Are you, are you carrying around perceptions? You know, someone gave you life ought to be working like this and it's not working like this and you're just dragging it through the airport of life. What are you carrying? Second question is, uh, what are you looking for? 
I think many of us are not free because we don't really know what we're looking for. I, I want to give it to you in a word. The Apostle Paul uses this word in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, and then in, chap, in verse 9 and 10 here in chapter 2, he uses this word uh, because this word is, uh, points to both an ancient reality and a modern reality. And I want to give you the word. I, I think it's what we're all looking for. And I want, then I want to show you how it's both ancient and modern. The word is that Paul uses in verse 19 and then 9 and 10 is fullness. Fullness. The scholar Charles Taylor, he's one of the best scholars in the world today. He's a great thinker, just insightful. Um, he's lived decades of life. And he, he wrote uh, what's uh, kind of in his circles, at least, a famous book called A Secular Age. He's trying to diagnose how did we get to this moment when most people say, I just have no use for God. Christian man. And he says, he uses, it's interesting, he uses that exact same word as he looks at our culture in all of its expressions and says, uh, you know, the word that I come up with to describe what it seems like everybody is looking for is what he calls fullness. Same word Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1 and and chapter 2. I want to read you a a quote because I think it's so important that you hear this. Here's what Charles Taylor says. He says, uh, somewhere, this is what we're all longing for, somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, a richness. In other words, when we're in that place, life will be fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more of what it should be. In other words, we think that maybe that fullness is, is just around the corner. The pandemic's happening. Well, any time now, we'll go back to the way things were when it was fall. Maybe the Joneses have it. We live in what many people call the experience economy. So we're collecting experiences and not things. And so we think that maybe it's the next experience or the next trip I take or the next place I visit or it's the next relationship or it's my next job or it's the next career or it's the next hill I climb. It's the next property I buy. It's the next business that I build. When I get that then I'll figure out and find that fullness that Charles Taylor talks about. But it's ancient, too. Uh, The the idea that that Paul was trying to combat was this idea that there was this kind of secret knowledge, and some people had the secret knowledge, and some people didn't. And once you have the secret knowledge, you'll be able to access that fullness. You'll have the insider info. The, 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 the title of that, the word of that was Gnostic. It's where we get our word knowledge. It's the same, got that same kind of root. And it, it, in Paul's day, it was actually, a, a, people thought of it as a, a place. There was within that gnosis or that knowledge, there was this place and it was called the Pleroma. Can you just say that out loud with me? Pleroma, Pleroma. Um, and the Pleroma, it translates that word fullness and it was this idea that was there was almost this spiritual force field or uh, there were, were, were forces and spirits and truth and meaning and ideas and purpose and insight existed. And if you could get access to that secret knowledge, then you could get in on the fullness. It was the ancient version of it's just around the corner. You just got to know how to get it. Do you know what you're looking for? Then the third question is, okay, well, maybe you do think you know what you're looking for. Maybe you don't. But how, how do you find that fullness? How do, you, how do you access it so it comes in here? 
Now, the ancients, what they would say, the Gnostics, what they would say is, listen, what you need to do is you need to, you need to kind of get yourself in the, the right frame of mind to access it. And once you find this secret knowledge, then you'll have access to it. And there were these teachers who were going around, and what they were saying was, listen, we have access to the fullness that you're looking for, and if you will give us money, we will give you access, and we will explain all the secrets of the universe to you, and you'll finally figure out how all of this works. And I think there were kind of three steps to that fullness that they were kind of pushing and people were buying into. Uh, Step number one was, okay, you got to find out how this works. And then step number two was, okay, well, then once you find out how this works, you got to adjust your behavior accordingly. It's about behavior modification to once you figure out how things work. And then the third step is then, then you'll receive the, the self or the fullness that you've been trying to find. You'll finally get it. Three steps. Now, I, uh, I think we do the same thing. Paul actually addresses two versions of this. We'll talk about a little bit more here in just a second. But we have a, we have a non-religious version of the same thing. And here's, here's how it goes. It's, it's not going to sound that unusual to you. What you need to do is you need to, you need to get yourself in the right frame of mind to be able to access it. And once you have the insider info and that kind of secret knowledge, then you'll have access to it. And there are teachers who hold webinars and have seminars that you can attend and have best-selling books that you can buy that explain to you how to access the fullness. And so if you give them money, then they will give you access to the thing you're looking for. But in our day, it sounds like, okay, so buy our course. Listen, it's a $529 value, but I'm going to give it to you today for $79. Or if you'd like, you can go on a monthly payment plan of $1,199, and then you have lifetime access to this library of content that will change your life. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Same three steps. Find out how it works. Adjust your behavior accordingly, behavior modification, bring yourself in line with how it works. And then once you've done that, you've done those two steps successfully, then you'll receive the self that you've always wanted. You'll finally have access to the fullness. You'll get it. But we have a, we have a religious version. We have a religious version of this too. Now, you may have, uh, you may have grown up. I don't, I don't know if you grew up in a, a faith environment. I I did. Um, I, I don't, and I'm not picking on particular groups so much as I'm just trying to name a reality. But just to say you grew up Catholic. And uh, let's say, you know, you grew up Catholic and, and you, you know, you got to find out how this works. You've got to, you know, you've got to get yourself in the right frame of mind and figure out how this all works. And so, you know, you, you hear from the church that you're to be baptized and, and that you need to be, go through catechism and you need to be confirmed. And, um, and then you need to attend mass because when you receive the elements of the, the Lord's Supper, then it's Jesus' body and blood for you and you experience forgiveness uh, for your sins in that moment. And, and so you need to be Catholic and make sure all of your family is Catholic and that your grandchildren are Catholic and you just need to keep the line going and, and everybody else is wrong. And so you, you figure out how God works and then you adjust your behavior accordingly. And then once you've done those, those things, then God gives you the self that you've always wanted. You somehow have access to the fullness. 
Now, I grew up Nazarene, Church of the Nazarene. We're part of that tribe of churches, and, and uh, I am a Nazarene of Nazarenes. If there is a Nazarene, I, I am it. I am, I am the guy. And, um, I, and, and so I, I, it, you might parse this differently than I do, but, you know, it's like we, we, same story. I figure how this works. Get me going to line myself up with, fine, how does this all work? You know, so, okay, I got to join a Sunday school class, and then I got to tithe my income, and then, you know, I want to be sanctified, and we would probably throw in there, you know, Make sure you attend potlucks. I don't, <laughs> if you grew up like I did, like that's important. <laughs> but it's the same thing. Find out how this works. Figure out how God works in this system, you know, this religious system. Adjust your behavior performance, performance modification, your behavior modification. And then once you've done those things successfully, then God will, the result, the, the cookie on the end is God rewards you with the fullness and the life you've been looking for. Now, here's what Paul's trying to say to us. This is the way of conformity. And, and many people base their life on these kind of steps. And, and maybe it feels unfair to label, label it as conformity, but what's conformity? It's you take an external standard and you bring yourself in line with the standard. I don't do that. Remember, uh, this was me, at least in high school, um, Went to school wearing Levi's button fly. And when I went to school, I, I realized I looked around and everybody else's jeans were peg-legged. Now, I understand that that was actually, you know, from a few decades before and it just brought back. But I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be out of place. I didn't want to not belong. And so I figured out how to peg-leg my... Now, you, you may say, well, that, yeah, that's high school. That was junior high. You know, I don't do... Really? You go to work? You walk in, however it is you're dressed, and I promise within three to six months, your wardrobe is going to look like most everybody else's so that when you go to lunch, everyone's going to go, oh, those guys all work in IT. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those are realtors. (laughs) Look, executives. Why? You've conformed to a standard. You, You found out how it works. You adjusted your behavior, and then you get to belong. See, Paul says that's conformity. So I got this, here's the life question we're trying to ask today. How are you ever going to be free if you're always conforming? How are you going to do that? So here's what Paul does for us. He tells us, and we're going to do this fast, what keeps you from being free, the nature of freedom, and then how to get it. What keeps you from being free, Paul says. It's, it's how you think things work. Here's how he says it in verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. What's philosophy? It's just trying to understand how things work. Paul's not saying philosophy is bad. He's saying hollow and deceptive philosophy is bad. And then he says it's the kind of philosophy that depends on, and it's two things, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It's kind of an odd phrase to us, rather than on Christ. In other words, you can want freedom, but look in the wrong places for it. And when you do, that way of thinking about how things work captures you. Now, if you're in captivity, you do understand, right, that someone is exercising power over you. You are not free. Now, again, two versions, non-religious and religious. And the non-religious version uh, sounds something like you take seriously the spirit of the age. And, and that word, their elemental forces, 
that is translated three words is one word in the original language. And everybody who heard Paul use that word would have got, oh, Paul, you're talking about the basic elements. And the ancient Greeks thought that the world was made up of earth, wind, and fire, great name for a band, and air. And, and there was a spiritual power associated with them. And, and they're like, oh, you're talking about that, Paul. And, and that we have a non-religious version, which is, you know, we're all, I'm not talking about being curious about the world. I'm talking about you're just always on this search and you're never finding it. And you're always looking, but you're never quite getting there. And it's this, it's this constantly shifting thing that you're trying to tap into. And, and it's, this, it's our non-religious version of it is the spirit of the age. And it acts like a spiritual force. And as you buy into the spirit of the age, what happens when you buy into that way of thinking, then guess what? You're now captive, which means something has power over you. And the, the, the irony of tapping into the spirit of the age is that you think you're free all the while you're a captive. And so there's this hollow thinking. And Paul he addresses it in verse 9 and 10. He says, listen, that pleroma, that place you think all the fullness dwells, it's in Christ. And when you see Jesus, you see everything there is about what's divine. You see everything there is to know about God. It's all in Jesus. You think it's this realm? Nope, it's Jesus. In fact, in Christ, you have been given it. You have complete and total access. You don't have to wait for some teacher to come along and tell you or reveal the secrets to you. You have access because you know Jesus. You have all of the fullness. So I'll, I'll, let me give you some examples of some spirits of the age that we, uh, we buy into. One is just kind of, um, we talk about, you've probably heard this, someone on a talk show, you know, they're talking about their life and they're being interviewed by Oprah or someone and, and they'll say, you know, I was, I was sitting there and and it's just like the universe spoke to me. I can appreciate the search for something larger. And I, I know, I'm, I know I'm, I'm mocking that. I am. <laughs> but I can appreciate the search for something larger. But it's awfully tough. So what they're saying is, okay, so the, the universe, the created order, the, the material world, somehow this impersonal force somehow created something, it communicated something personal to me. Like, that takes a lot of faith. I got a lot more faith for saying a personal God who is the author of everything that you see personally communicated to me in a personal way because he personally wants to know me. I, I, I can get in gear with that, right? But you can buy into this like vague force idea and you buy it. And what happens is you think that's like the trees are speaking to you. The trees are being blown by the wind. <laughs> Or another one, another spirit of the age is identity politics. You know, it's the idea that we're in this moment where you can just define whoever you are. You can just choose an identity and identify as X, and that's who you are, and everybody ought to support you. And I, I, listen, I, I want to tell you there's something actually right about that. I want to affirm the thing that's right about that. And, and anytime you're wrestling with something you don't agree with, find the thing that's right about it, because there's something that's right about it. Not everything, but something. What's right about it is people are trying to answer the question, like, is there a me? Who am I? That's human. That, that's right about it. But here's where it goes, here's where it goes um, in a way that keeps people in captivity. If you're not who you are, if you're not who you are, who, who you were given to be, then what you have to do is you have to perform for some other identity. It's what psychologists call a performative identity. You're trying to, you're trying to play a role, and so you've got to do all the things that go along with the role. Like, I'm not this, I'm this. I'm not that, I'm this other thing. And so you have to play this role, and it's an exhausting treadmill existence because you never get off the time when you're playing a role. 
And, and you'll be thinking, I'm, I'm like, I'm going with the spirit of the age. This is how everybody thinks. This is what everybody thinks about the world. And, and you won't realize that you're captive, that someone has power over you. Or another one is just, you know, we're kind of open to all paths. You know, I got to align my chakra. I got to fix my karma. I'm going to go down the eightfold path. I'm going to read tarot cards. And now, listen, I get that it's very appealing in the moment, but it's those three steps. That's all it is. Do you see it? Did you find out how it all works? Then you adjust your behavior, and then you find the self you've always wanted. You see, that's what it is, right? Can you pull back the curtain and go, oh, that's what's happening? But then there's a religious version, and Paul gets into it in verse 11 and verse 12, and he talks about circumcision, and he's just saying there's a religious version of this that exists, and this may not be immediately obvious to you, but what Paul's talking about there is he's talking about his, the religion of his youth. He grew up Jewish. And if you grow up as a Jewish boy, you, uh, you are given a, a mark in your body of the covenant that your people made with God at Mount Sinai through Moses and with Abraham. And you are, you are, this mark is born in your body and is the mark of circumcision. I am not here to describe that to you. Ask your mother at lunch, okay? I'm not going to get into all that. But here's what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, listen, you may bear in your body that mark. You may have done the thing that everybody said that you were supposed to do. But the the act of circumcision, it didn't make you a good person. You're not suddenly free because you did this thing in your body or your parents had it done for you. You did it because it was a human tradition, but it didn't get you what you wanted. It's an external marker without an internal reality. That's what religion is that Jesus was always against and Paul was always against. You, you, you know, and, and it's just a religious version of the same thing. Figure out how it works. Figure out how God works. Adjust your behavior accordingly. Then God is obligated to give you the self that you've wanted. Honestly, religion is a way to control God. I've watched people, wonderful people, um, take religion and they, they think, okay, if I do all the things that I'm supposed to do and I look good on the outside and I check all the boxes... Then, then God is obligated to give me the life that I want. And if you're not getting the life that you want, you're either mad at God, God, I hate thee, or you're mad at yourself, I hate me, or you go back and forth, like, God, I hate thee, God, I hate me. Because you can't ever get it right. You're like, well, I did all the things. How come my life's not working out? Why am I hurting right now? Why do I have this baggage? I mean, we grew up, this is a, we're a holiness church. I'm for holiness to my core. But you can grow up around that, hear all the language, and you can go, you know, like, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't drink or chew, and I don't go with the girls who do. <laughs> but it can be, instead of being anything life-giving about a response to what Jesus has done for you, it can be a way for you to twist God's arm and give you the freedom you're looking for. Because honestly, if... if if all of this is, it's just I keep a bunch of rules. Like I don't drink and I don't, you know, but growing up the list was longer. You know, I don't go to movies and I don't play pool and I don't play cards. You know, like, if that's the thing and that's all that's required to get the fullness, then why do I even need to have a relationship with God in the first place? Just keep the rules. And Paul's like, it doesn't work. It's the way of conformity. Non-religious, religious. Then he tells us the nature of freedom, and he says that let, let, let you're free from judgment. In verse 16, don't let anybody judge you by your diet or the days that you keep. And there's a long history to that. But it seems a little bit silly, right? How can you not let anyone judge you? They don't judge me. I don't think that's what Paul's trying to say. I think what Paul's trying to say is 
because of what Jesus has done for you, you don't have to receive anyone's judgment of you. You may not have control over the fact they don't like how you do X, Y, or Z, but you don't have to receive it. Because guess what? The gospel is that God's opinion of you is the opinion that counts. And God is the one who knows you best, and he knows you at your worst, and he has the highest possible opinion of you. So let his opinion of you count more than anybody else's opinion. Then guess what? You won't receive anybody else's judgment. You'll be like, you're a human being just like me. You put your pants on just like I do. And then he also says that you're free from the rules of the world. You're, you're free from the rules. And, and what happens is people will use their view to put their thumb on you. And, and they add in all kinds of rules and principles that aren't from God. They're just human tradition. They're just somebody's opinion. And you may really love that person and the opinion that they had. And they, but they're, they're culture-bound like you are. And they have an opi- they're just a person. Who cares what they think? It, what matters is what God thinks. And you are free from that. You are free from those rules. You're obligated to keep all those rules. Listen, I understand there are some personality types, um, and I have some in my family who are like, it's like, show me the rules and I will keep the rules. (laughs) Like, that's not me. I'm like, show me the rules and I will break them. Um, I I get it. I get it. I'm not talking about temperament, though. I'm simply saying, listen, you're now free from human tradition. You don't have to, you're not bound by any human tradition. I don't care who, who gave it to you. I don't care how deep a voice they used to tell it to you. It didn't matter. You're free. And then Paul tells us how to get it. Phil's going to come up and play in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to come and pray here in just a minute. He gives us this beautiful passage in, in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and, and he tells us how we were dead in our sins, and he tells us how, how Christ disarmed those powers that were over us by the, what he did for us on the cross and made a public, public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross, verse 15 says. I, here's what I want you to see. Paul says that on the cross, what happened is that Jesus forgave all of your sins. That on the cross, Jesus canceled the debt that you owe. That's the original cancel culture. God doesn't cancel you. He cancels what's against you. He canceled the debt that you owed. He canceled the condemnation that people had for you and that you had for yourself. He canceled it all. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. So whenever you see the cross... What you need to see is your forgiveness and the fact that you no longer have a debt and there's now no condemnation for you. Those powers of human tradition, those powers of the spirit of the age, those power, those spiritual forces, Christ disarmed those things on the cross and made a public spectacle of them so we don't have to do anything with them anymore. Um, one of my experiences as a pastor, I just, I, just, I, I try to, I want to help people. I, I, I think that's one of my jobs as a pastor is to help people follow Jesus. And if Jesus was the freest person you've ever known, then I, I want to help your life be in line with that. So I just thought, I thought it'd be good if we did a little bit of business with God. And we have these benches down here. We call them altars. And um, there's nothing necessarily special about this piece of furniture. It's not, it's just a piece of furniture. Uh, But for a a lot of years, uh, folks around here have used these benches as a way to, just kind of a sacred space where they do some business with God. And so I'm going to ask you in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand now if you would. 
I'm going to ask you a minute um, to, if, if this is you, if you're like, I, I need to be free. Either because you recognize, oh, my word, I've bought into the spirit of the age. I, I, I don't know how to get off the treadmill. I have no clue. I would, oh, I'm going to need help. Or if you say, you know, I grew up around this stuff and it's just like weighed on me and I just, I just feel like I'm just in this religious treadmill. I don't want to get off that either. And so here's what I'd like to invite you to do. You, you're not obligated to do this, but it just might be helpful to you to physically move yourself to these benches and you can kneel here and pray. We're going to end quietly. No one's going to bug you. Uh, but it's just physically, it's like you're moving on your journey. You're like, I'm going to walk toward my freedom. Ah, come on, God. And I, I'd like for you to walk out of here, not captive to the spirit of the age, but free. I'd like you to walk out of here, not captive to human tradition and religion, but free in Jesus. Lord, we're in the, we're in the, the posture of receiving. We want to receive from you what you have. And you have freedom. So we want to receive that. So we we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to live in your path, Jesus, as free people, free in the way that you are free. Free from the elemental forces, the spirit of the age, free from human tradition, free. We hear your words, Jesus, who the Son sets free. That person is free indeed. So we want to operate that way. So meet us, fill us with your freedom and your spirit, Lord. We ask this in your name and all God's people said, amen. If you're sinned, if you can go quietly and give folks a chance to pray. Thanks for joining us.